Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome into another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we always remind you think deterrence. Now, of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and we have Jim Petrosky, Christine Leah, and Curtis McGiffin, who are also all part of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. And today we have a lot to talk about because there's been a lot going on in the news. And I want to open it up to Christine. Christine, there's there's been a lot going on in the news. There's been a lot we've we've been taking in and reading over the last week. What what stood out in your mind amongst the news, uh, particularly the news that's relevant for us and our audience? Did anything in particular stand out for you? Hey, Adam, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, I've been struck in general about the discourse coming out of the U.S., our great nation, Um over the importance of reinvigorating arms control, so both nuclear and conventional. That's been really interesting because arms control has a really complicated history. It tends to arise out of crises rather than proactive policy as such. So I've been reading recently some old documents from the 80s and 70s around SALT 1, SALT 2, um, and, and all the issues that came out of that with the Soviets. And what's really interesting now is how we think about the Asia-Pacific region with arms control, because that region doesn't have a good history of doing this for different reasons. Uh, There's a great scholar who passed away, uh, Gerald Siegel from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He was one of the first people to write about arms control in Asia. And he pointed out that the region doesn't have a, the same sort of legalistic history as Western Europe had in thinking through these issues. And in in Asia, it tended to be more confidence building measures, informal agreements, saving face, that sort of thing. Um, And anything that was sort of set up was within the context of the Cold War. So it wasn't Asia, and Asia was never really the the focus during the Cold War. Um, And so I think what's going to be interesting is thinking about conventional and nuclear arms control in the Asia Pacific with regarding China, right? We're talking about China. Sure. Um, and I mean, China isn't even interested in arms control. And why would it be? There are no incentives for it to engage in it yet. Um, so I think it's going to take a crisis, unfortunately, for this to, for, for anything to really be discussed. Now, there was a an article in Air and Space Forces magazine discussing a study that was completed by CGSR, the Center for Curtis. What is that? Center for Global CGS. Somebody help me out. What does CGSR stand for? Okay. Center for Global Security and Research. So CGSR at Lawrence Livermore, Brad Roberts led a study and one of their conclusions, and this is relevant to the topic of arms control, 
was that the United States certainly needs Slickamen, the nuclear submarine launch cruise missile, and that the United States may need to grow and expand its arsenal, which would be, in many respects, counter to this to the notion of proactive arms control when both China, the United States, potentially Russia, North Korea, certainly are all growing their arsenals and the United States is having to figure out what to do. Curtis, was there, what what did you think yeah, of this notion? I, I wanted to build on that and Christine's um, uh, point that uh, this study also uh, took a look at arms control strategy, and it was very interesting. Uh, they looked at this and said, you know, the United States needs to simultaneously prepare for a world with and without arms control. Now, this is something that I think is is popping springs out of people's heads uh, in Washington, D.C. area. Um, the idea of, of, of America not being in an armed control uh, arrangement or a treaty is, is probably unheard of um, uh, to many of, of our, our friends in, in the uh, greater D.C. area. Um, and that the, the, the challenge is, is how do you account for the limits um, when two of the three um, – uh, of the two of the three members of this nuclear, this new superpower club, uh, near peer club, uh, are, are going to be, when they combine forces are literally going to be twice as big as we are is, uh, I, I think the study was very cautious to say that while we might need to build up, they were very cautious to say that maybe we don't need to build up so much that we have to match them, uh, uh, in, in numbers. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think this is something that, um, uh, you know, I, I want to dig, uh, dig deeper into this study, but, um, if that is truly the case, I, that may be a, that may be a miss, um, as we look through that and that, and that failing to prepare for an unconstrained environment will result in the United States having no negotiating leverage that it can use to try to prevent the same arrangement or, or environment. And so uh, this sort of hints at the you know the Reagan esque era of of building Glickums and Pershing Pershing two missiles and deploying them and and bringing the Soviets to the table uh, because they simply found that threat to be intolerable. And um, um, I, I find it hard to understand how we are going to bring Russia and China to the table unless and until we create a situation that they feel is intolerable. And thus, an, an arms control uh, treaty or arrangement is worth being into. Uh, and this study uh, acknowledges the political challenges of trying to get there. And so it, it conveniently sort of excuses that we can't. Uh, but at the same time says we shouldn't let that mean that we don't try. Uh, so anyway, that is uh, that is an interesting thing, and I'm interested how allies will view that because if we if we're viewed as not having enough capacity, um, do allies are they are they more or less assured? That will be the big question. Let me before we throw this over to Jim because Jim was listening to some interesting testimony uh, this week on Capitol Hill from our senior leaders. But to answer Curtis's question, Christine. How how do the Australians or, you know, 
from your vantage point in the Pacific, uh, is there any discussion about, you know, whether the United States needs to grow its arsenal, whether American commitment to the region is sufficient, or is that not a discussion that's being had? Hey, Adam, thanks. Um, So for the Asia-Pacific generally, historically, as I mentioned earlier, it was never at the center of strategic competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. So nuclear strategy, the interest in nuclear strategy was was sort of, there wasn't a tremendous interest in like the operational aspects of it, the way Western Europe was interested in this, you know, like you know, logistics, deployment, uh, actual nuclear weapons on allies, or and numbers, uh, sort of counterforce, countervalue those discussions. They didn't really happen in the Asia Pacific, in neither Japan, South Korea, Australia. Um, now that there's, you know, heightened competition, and one might argue perhaps a new Cold War. By the way, we're going to have more Cold Wars because nuclear weapons exist. Um, I'm, I would like to see that kind of discussion, unfortunately, because that kind of needs to happen if deterrence is going to be credible. However, there's a more fundamental point here. And there's a professor at the Australian National University called Professor Hugh White. Um, he's written extensively on this. It's not so much about the numbers, although there is some uncomfortableness if the US goes below a thousand and who knows now, given that China is expected to exceed 1,500, it's it's the more fundamental question of, is the US willing to give blood and treasure for the sake of its allies? Are we that important? Is South Korea, Japan, and Australia that important? Especially given that so little, quote unquote, is being done for Ukraine. Yeah, it's a fair question. But, you know, given the number of baseball players, basketball players, and kickers that are playing in American professional sports, I don't see how we're not invested in Australia's defense. So I, I certainly think uh, blood and treasure for Australia, plus the great wine. I mean, the great wine is also has a lot of value. So I don't know. It's better than French wine. <laughs> now, Jim, you've been listening and watching some of the the hearings on the Hill and had some deep thoughts about those hearings. Uh, are you are you interested in sharing those deep thoughts? Adam, you know, I'm never interested in sharing any of my thoughts. It's so hard for you to get me to talk. Um, so yeah, so let, let me go back. I want to, I want to highlight something that Christine said for our audience. Cause I, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was so fitting. And that was that we only start talking about arms control when we are in a crisis. And one of the issues, you know, and I'll, I'll turn this over back over to Christine, cause I'm very interested in what she has to say about it. That is related to this, these hearings, but, there's an issue with nuclear weapons that is a little different than other types of weapons in that once you get behind the power curve, unless your adversaries stop moving, you're behind a power curve. There's this long tail. 
And so maybe we need to think of arms control discussions when we're not in crisis and if, if we're going to discuss them at all. And uh, for example, when you think about just our ability to build new weapons uh, and, and perhaps have some, some methodology for increasing the number of weapons on the ground and increasing the number of delivery systems and capability to match our near-peer adversaries, it takes time. And that time is lost when you wait until the crisis is there. And so I thought that was a really good comment uh, to make because that is the issue now going back to what has been said uh, in these uh, in these armed service committee and this ask uh, 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 Honorable Deb Fisher, I believe, was talking this week uh, and she highlighted two things that I thought I'd point out. And they were quotes from the NPR. And one was that our strategy uh, we should tailor our strategies for potential adversaries that reflect our best understanding of their decision-making perceptions. Now that's out of the NPR. That's a quote. And the and and you think about where we are. We've got to look at those perceptions, and then second of all, we have to make our decisions based upon those perceptions. This goes back to you know many episodes ago, Curtis, you know, schooling us in the idea of deterrence and the fact it's not just about what we think of ourselves, but what our adversaries think of what we think of ourselves. And that's really important here. But the other piece, and this is where I, I think having someone who is not 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 from the US to talk about this is a second part of that. And that is the second quote that came out of the testimony, which was uh, the quote that we will collaborate with our allies and partners to tailor our extended deterrence and assure uh, and assurance policies. And so this tailoring shouldn't be done in a crisis. It should be done well ahead of time. And this uh, this idea that we do these kind of things in a crisis mode is not good. And so the article, going back to the article, and I'll talk about some of the others maybe a little later, but this article is something you would not have seen 10 years ago. We should expand a nuclear arsenal. People are like, oh, come on. Well, now look where we are 10 years later. If you could go back 10 years and think of it again, it might have been different. So what are we going to do for the next 10 years and how are we going to approach it? So I'll turn it back to you, Adam, to, you know, or, uh, to figure out who this is going to get thrown to. But those are my comments. Christine, Curtis? Well, I'll just throw in here just a minute so I can let Christine have the the longer part here. You know, I think this goes to this idea of how we do campaigning, campaign planning, and these sorts of things where we seek to shape and deter in those phases. Um, and um, I, I think the problem with shaping and campaigning is we do so uh, without um, – um, the idea of what really could happen. Um, it, I think I've, I've said this before, and I'm at risk of sounding like a broken record. Uh, the value of keeping what nuclear weapons we did in the 90s, all right, after uh, the fall of the wall, uh, we could have easily gone down to zero and eliminated them all uh, between Russia and, 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 uh, and the U.S., there was enough hedging on both sides to realize we couldn't do that. And the reason why we kept some is for today is for the situation we're in now we've hedged all through the nineties and in the early two thousands through the war on terror, 
where we thought nuclear weapons are just draining money that we could be spending on the war on terror. What we kept them for what is occurring today, 40 years later. And the problem is, is that we as Americans don't think 40 years in advance very well. And, uh, and so we kind of got lucky here and, uh, that we have what we have, but we have, what we have is what we had. Yeah. (laughs) And, and so where are, we are late to this. And when we look at campaign planning, when we try to shape the world and try to, uh, 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 develop capabilities with our adversaries and, 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 uh, uh, you know, tactics, techniques, and procedures of how we're going to do things out there. The reality is, is that we're really practicing for things that we really don't think will ever happen until it does. And that's the, and that's the catch. And now here we are today. You know, I, 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 again, real quick, you know, in my time, uh, while I was in uniform, not to tell too many war stories, but often what we saw in the Pentagon was this desire to plan for potential conflict, but it was never the worst case scenario of, in a nuclear exchange. That's never going to happen. And so consequently, we're really not prepared. Uh, and we're, we're just having to start thinking about it now when the crisis is occurring because, oh my gosh, a year or two ago, this was unthinkable. And so here we are. And it's not only us, it's our allies that have to think about it too. Sometimes we push them along. Sometimes they push us along. Uh, but nonetheless, we are always late to the game they, we often tell each other that we are, we're always fighting the last war. I would also say that we're always thinking about the last war. We do not do very well about thinking about the next war. That's my opinion. Uh, and for what I've observed out there, Christine, what do you say? No, Curtis, mate, that is an excellent point. I love it. Uh, yeah. So I studied nuclear strategy, uh, back in 20, oh God, 20 years ago, far out. Um, and I, f- I fell in love with it. I thought, wow, this is what I want to do. This is what mm-hmm. I'm going to do. And I remember studying, uh, reading, like, Keith Payne, who's one of my personal heroes. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And nuclear weapons and strategy. And it's, but also I come at it from a historical perspective because I'm a historian, mm-hmm. sort of. Um, and I just remember thinking in the, 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 you know, 2012, 2013, when China started to do its thing in the South China Sea. By the way, why do we call it the South China Sea? Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking, great power competition. That's what this starts to look like. And I remember thinking, why aren't we talking about this anymore? Like historically, right. great power competition is business as usual. The 90s was an aberration in history. Right. Smoke on that, Francis Fukuyama. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're ill-prepared and we don't take a historical perspective as you as you sort of allude to Curtis. And so, but thank goodness we have some and yeah, it was unconscionable uh, two years ago to, to, to talk about, Hey, America expanding an arsenal. And even I'm surprised. Right. Um, but we need to be having these discussions and nobody wants to go to war, but that's the whole point. We need to deter war to have peace. I wonder if, you know, the, when Dung, when Deng Xiaoping said, um, uh, what, what was it? Uh, Tao Wang Yang Hui, you know, bide, uh, hide your strength and bide mm-hmm. your time. Right. That that worked for, you know, more than three decades. And now that's no longer the policy of 
of the People's Republic of China. And so the United States, for whatever reason, seems to be caught off guard by the fact that, you know, China isn't going to peacefully rise and China wants to be a peer. And, and I'm, and as we're taken aback by the fact that China's building, you know, new missile silos and that it's going to try to reach parity. I'm sort of surprised that this is so shocking, particularly to folks in, you know, in, in Washington, when it would be ahistorical for China to be anything else than what we're now seeing it to be. It's it's simply returning to a status that it held for several thousand years. And and yet when we read articles, you know, about uh about balloons, you know, there's information about the balloons collecting secrets and we you know, the administration was shocked by it. And then they're talking about, you know, General Cotton what was you know, he was testifying this week as well. And there's a, a great article out. Uh, I think it's in the Omaha Herald that, you know, interviews, talks about his interview and, and they talked to Hans Christensen and and how even handed General Cotton was. But General Cotton clearly talks about the, the China threat. But uh, I just wonder if, you know, if people are fundamentally understanding how China wants to and Russia and, you know, there was this meeting, what a week or so ago with between Xi and uh, Putin to strengthen the bond between the two nations. And I think accurately people are saying that uh, Russia will become the subservient state to China, uh, that people still seem to be, shocked and they want to minimize what's happening and they don't see like if you read if you read um the comments that were in response to the study from cgsr and then if you you know there was somebody from the obama administration arms control person in the state department or on the national security council and 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 then there was uh hans christensen responded he was interviewed for the article in the omaha herald all of them are still saying, well, we just let's, you know, this isn't really that big a threat. We don't need to go crazy and, and expand the arsenal. And I, I'm sort of wondering at what point do people see the threat? Is it once we're, you know, once we're on our knees, is that when the threat is perceived or is it before? Because the, the, all the, the information and the, you know, the material coming out, over the last week that we're discussing clearly lays out that threat and there's always people trying to minimize it. And and I'm sort of taken aback. Am I wrong on this guys? Adam, it's, it's always easy to look back and see what brought you here. And it's always difficult to look forward to where you're going, but there seem to be some immutable things. I've always, I think you guys have heard me say before, you know, people are people. And what I mean by that always is there are certain natures in terms of establishing dominance, uh, you know, controlling your environment and other people's that are common that you must always factor into what everybody's doing. And that goes back to this quote before, understanding someone's perception 
of you and how you impact them. And I think that's what really that that is missing in sort of our 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 uh, our national outlook and our view. It's not going to always be the same. In fact, everyone talks about the status quo. And I sort of been in, in this podcast, I think two weeks ago, I said, what in the world is the status quo? Because last year, the status quo was something different than it is now. And the status quo 10 years ago is different. The point is, the only status quo is that you will have aggressive elements that will take advantage of opportunity, they'll be opportunistic and take advantage of their position in order to establish dominance. And, um, and it, that leads me to, because you asked me about this, uh, this, this Sask's report, uh, there was a, 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 a Dr. Robert, uh, a Brad Roberts, uh, the director of Center for Global Security Research, and he sort of highlighted this in a very clean way. And I'm glad we're bringing this to the forefront. I'm not glad it's happening, but I'm glad we bring it for, forefront. And he, he said in his testimony that the allies are living in the nuclear crosshairs sort of let that sit for a second, of our nuclear-armed adversaries. Our nuclear-armed adversaries seek to remake the regional orders in which they sit. And the prize in this competition, and if there were a war, in war, the prize is the allegiance of our alloys. Allies, not alloys, allies. And my, my point in this is people are people. The same idea of dominance in any region. And I agree with you, Adam. We're letting it blow by, but it's there. And people are seeing, which is probably good of a wake up, maybe a little late. Curtis, I know you're just ready to jump in. Go. <laughs> so I think that I, excellent commentary, uh, James. And I'll add that, that Dr. Brad Roberts uh, served in the, in the Obama administration. Uh, he is um, uh, you know, looking at this issue very soberly. Uh, but I think part of the problem here right now is just there are still many, many people um, who don't necessarily see China as the threat that it is, despite the language in the national security strategy and national defense strategy. I think Adam calls them panda huggers, uh, which I think is an interesting um, panda term. huggers versus um, panda uh, sluggers. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there was a, a recently, I guess, uh, you know, on, uh, in the Washington Post, uh, Max Boot uh, referred to China as nominally a communist country. Um, uh, Francis Sempa has a piece out in, in Real Clear Defense today, uh, sort of calling him out on this uh, idea. Um, and, and I go and, I, and I, I, I look at anybody who is still heavily invested in China, uh, whether it's their personal IRAs, whether it is uh, – um, uh, America's retirement funds uh, associated with large conglomerates. Um, we are still funding the th kinds of things that China is doing uh, because their economy is so tied to their to their civil uh, the civil military fusion. And so, uh, until we are ready to separate ourselves and stop, as I've said in past podcasts, we have to stop funding our adversary. Uh, and so we're ready to start doing that. Uh, we're, we're not going to be able to to really see China uh, as the threat that that uh, that this administration says it is um, as a pacing threat. Um, and then I uh, concur and, and believe it to be. Uh, and I would imagine Christine might as as well from the land down under. And so I would 
I would argue that we have to really look at China in a sober fashion, assess what they're doing and how they're behaving, and determine if whether or not we really want to continue to fund it. Uh, we, I don't think we have a whole bunch of capital going into Russia right now, but yet we still are sending gobs of money to China in a trade imbalance um, and investment. Yeah, I've often wondered why we haven't moved much of our manufacturing because China, you know, they're not chip producers and high-end producers. They're assemblers. They do a lot of assembly. And I've wondered sort of why we haven't moved much of that to our much closer, you know, uh, continent of Africa where we could have, you know, West, West Coast African nations that could be doing much of the manufacturing because they would have more advantageous labor rates. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of labor, you know, they would welcome the investment and, you know, it would seem to be a boon, you know, to the United States and the Western world to have a much closer, you know, manufacturing base. Well, in, in Latin America yeah, as well. Latin America as well. But I, I wonder, and maybe Christine can comment on this. There's, I don't know if you're familiar with the Cesar Milan theory, of international power, and that is that you must assert your dominance. So, you know, as Cesar Milan always says, you must assert your dominance. When training, when training his dogs. I'm trying to make sure we do yeah. what we're talking about. But it's a, theory of, it's a theory of international power too, right? I mean, you must assert your dominance. So I'll turn it over to you, Christine. Uh, yeah, uh, look, I think we're going to go back to business as usual, which is great power, military, economic competition. So I, that we're standing on shifting sands at the moment. Um, but you make great points. I mean, why why not invest in Africa? Why not invest in sure, Philippines? Yeah. Pacific mm-hmm, yeah. nations, even though they don't have the infrastructure yet. Why aren't we investing more in the Pacific? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and I would say one other place you talk about drying up the investment in China. Why don't we start producing more of our own oil and take away Putin's number one financial input? But that's another issue. Well, I mean, the whole reason the whole reason President Biden blew up the Nord Stream pipeline was to. Oh, no. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> well, I mean, conspiracies conspiracy theories are always right. That's the whole point of them, right? Plus I saw it on the internet. <laughs> was it, wasn't it in a Washington post reporter who said that? So, I mean, if the post re- is reporting it, it must be true. But anyway, the, so, the idea you know, is to, to, to look at where, you know, to, to Christina's end and to Curtis end talking about Latin America, Africa, South America, Canada, there are other places in which we can build these industrial uh, the industrial needs to to meet the American desire for consumer goods that doesn't include China. And when you see that as sort of, I won't say punishment, but I'll say reaction to the aggressive actions, and we do the same thing to Russia, you see an action or a reaction, you see a larger strategy to over time build a, a, a an ability to control some of this activity and right now we don't have it 
In fact, we're doing the opposite. We seem to be putting more in the hands, more in financial hands of the of Russia from oil, more in the financial hands of China, and it's getting returned to us. And sadly, as Christina said, uh, sadly, it becomes it gets us closer and closer to war. Our objective is to maintain peace. That is what we want. So that's the status quo I want is the peaceful status quo. Everything else is negotiable, but keep it peace. Amen, brother. Well, unfortunately, it is that time where we have to end the show. We always run out of time. It's it's one of those things. Uh, Jim, Christine, do you guys want to have the last word on this? Well, if Christina, yeah, if Christine's not, Christine's not going to. So, I, you know, for those in our audience, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that we have various guests come in here. And we try to bring in as much as we can in terms of culture from America. And so when we had Robin on, she made an excellent, excellent comment about the office. And so recently, I'm the technical guy. My wife talked me into getting a television. And I thought, since I'm building an office, I'd watch a show at the office. And what this reminds me of is the episode in which Dwight Schrute wanted to get under Andy's skin. And so what he did is he wore the Cornell shirt and put the Cornell banner there and Andy just became livid. And what he was doing is the short game, irritating and irritating and irritating under his skin. But the long game was to get Angela to come to his barn on the, for their wedding and stay there. And I see this as the same issue. Get under our skin, give us balloons, Irritate us, irritate us, irritate us. Look here. But the end game is what happens is is the bigger piece here. And we have to keep our eye on that prize. And so I think that part of pop culture is really important for us these days. Adam, back to you. (laughs) I don't know, Christine, did you have a pop culture reference for us? Uh, uh, Because it's, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a, a show if we're not talking about Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, The Office, Cesar Milan, something like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, not really. Okay. Uh. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, we'll have to watch uh, some more episodes of. Uh, I'm forgetting. Farmer wants a wife. Farmer wants. That's a great. You know, it's a great thing for those of you that are fans of Farmer Wants a Wife, and we're gonna take a little bit of time here, but. Farmer Wants a Wife, it's on Fox. It's a great show, but it originated in Australia. So if you haven't watched it, go to Hulu and watch the original Australian version. It's even better. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Christine. That was a great, great point. Now, we are out of time. And we do want to thank you, Jim, Christine, Curtis, for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View. And of course, as always, we want to thank you, the audience, for joining us. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence.